10 and read through verse 14, the remaining verses of this first chapter. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? We'll pause our reading there this evening as we conclude this first chapter as far as our study, reading and study goes uh, for this evening. As I mentioned previously to you, the theme even last week, the theme of the epistle to the Hebrews clearly is that Christ is better. And I gave you a list last week just as a brief overview of how we see Christ to be better throughout the epistle to the Hebrews. And it's not limited to this, of course, but Jesus Christ, as Hebrews teaches us, is better than the angels. That's what we find in chapter 1. He is better than the highest of created beings. He himself not being created, but made manifest in the flesh. He is a better high priest, representing man to God. He is a better prophet, representing God to man. He is a better atonement offered by God on our behalf. He is a better mediator of a better covenant, which was made between God the Father and God the Son. Remember, the old covenant is the, I'll say this to you again, that the old covenant is the seed form or seed bed and seed form of all the truth you find revealed in the New Testament or in the New Covenant. The New Covenant is the fruition of the seed form of the Old Covenant. And so the Old Covenant, however, was made between God and men. You find many conditions upon that covenant. The Lord told his people Israel specifically that if you will do this, then I will do this. If you will not do this, then I will do this, (laughs) or I will not do this. And God was faithful to his covenant, but man failed, obviously, as he always does. But in the New Covenant, we are the benefactors of that covenant, But the covenant is not made between God and men. The covenant is made between God the Father and God the Son. And so it's a perfect covenant, an everlasting covenant, and it is the fruition. It is the intention and the purpose of all that was shadowed within the old covenant. The new covenant is this. It is the fruition. It's in the fullest form of those promises. And then that brings us to, as well, Jesus Christ provides a better hope through his better ministry, which is built upon better promises. As I previously explained within the first chapter of this epistle, the writer references Psalms at least nine times, and that's interesting. But again, it makes so much sense when you pause and consider this, because who is the book of Hebrews written to? Hebrews, right, the Jews. And so when he references the Psalms so many times and the prophets in, the, in this first chapter, we find that it, that should not surprise us because this is written to a people who knew the Old Testament. They knew the Psalms. They knew the Old Covenant. And so the writer of Hebrews is clearly pointing out the truth by showing the old, the seed form of the new, that is the fulfillment and fruition of that old. He is showing clearly that this one they referred to in the Psalms, which they held dear to, is actually the person of Christ. God has fulfilled all of this in the person of Christ. He is better than all that they were clinging to, thinking that they understood and they had a knowledge of that which they really did not have knowledge of really whatsoever. And you find that to be evident throughout the book of Malachi, for instance. So Psalms is mentioned at least nine times, and the Old Testament prophets at least six times are directly referenced in the first chapter, in 14 verses of this first chapter of Hebrews. 
Now, again, that shouldn't surprise us. All the Old Testament prophecies and shadows were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is better, which is the emphasis of the book. And last week, we examined the significance of verse 5 when the writer presents the distinction between Jesus, the Son of God, who is better than the created angels. In, in verses 5 through 7, we find those verses referenced. We're not going to read all of this this evening, but it references Psalms 97, 6 and 7 and Psalms 104, verse 4. Then in verses 8 and 9, they, that passage references Psalms 45, 6 and 7. And then verses 10 through 12 references Psalms 102, 25 through 27. So there's several references right there alone. David Allen commented, the author wove together the seven Old Testament quotations in the form of a conceptual chiasm to make a theological statement about the Son. Now, a, a chiasm is a, is a literary device. Think of poetry in a sense. That kind of may help you to understand what it actually is. If you think about poetry, often you'll find that there'll be in, in the rhyme of poetry, you may have like A, B, and then, you know, and then it may be back to A and then B, and that's how the poetry flows. Well, a, a chiasm is a literary device when used, it repeats statements or truths in a reverse order, which results in a mirrored effect. In other words, so something will be stated, something else will be stated, and then the second thing will be stated, then the first thing will be stated. So it's re repetition of truth or verses or statements that are made, but then it's put in a reverse order to mirror one another and to emphasize the truth. And so I want to lay that out for you, how that's done in this first chapter. First of all, and I'll give you the lettering so that you can understand the connection. First is A, the son's status as Davidic king. That's in Hebrews 1, 5. And the references in the, from the Psalms in Old Testament for that is Psalm 2, 7 and 2 Samuel 7, 14. And we looked at this some weeks back. Then you have B, the son's status as God. And that's in Hebrews 1, 6 and 7. And you see that the Old Testament references for that are Deuteronomy 32, 43 and Psalm 104, verse 4. Then you have C, the son's status as divine Davidic king, and that's Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, which references Psalms 45, verses 6 and 7. And then you have B going backwards now. B, the son's status as God. Remember I said A was the son's status as Davidic king. B was the son's status as God. C is the son's status as divine Davidic king, but then it goes back to B, the son's status as God in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, and the reference is Psalm 102, 25 through 27, and then back to A, the son's status as Davidic king in Hebrews chapter 1, 13, which is a quote from Psalm 110, 1. And so this is what's referred to as this, as this, this uh, chism, which is this means by which the truth that's being iterated is given and then reversed, then given in reverse order to emphasize the truth. In other words, remember, chapter 1 is all about Jesus Christ is better than the angels, but the real emphasis here is that he is better than the angels. Why is he better than the angels? He's given a more, more excellent name than they. What is that name? Not J-E-S-U-S, the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Name is referencing not a, a description, but the person themselves. So in other words, it'd be like if you think of someone's name, when you think of a person, you think of their name, you don't think simply of a description of someone. You're thinking of the person, them, he, he or her, himself. And so it is with the name that's above that which was given to the angels. It's not about the the letters comprising the name Jesus, 
And Christ is not a name. That's, that's the anointed one. It means the Messiah or the anointed one. So Jesus, the name, is not the significance here in the letters being formed. It's the person who is Jesus that is the significance. And so all through this first chapter, you're seeing emphasized he, the son's status as Davidic king, as God, as the divine Davidic king, as God, as the Davidic king. <laughs> so this is the importance of who this Jesus is. This is not just a description of him. This is his person. And remember, the power of one's name. When we pray in Jesus' name, again, it's not praying using the letters J-E-S-U-S and closing out a prayer with that. No, it is praying according to his will and his power and his authority according to that which he has purposed and desires to be. And so we are submitting ourselves to that truth. Last week, we examined the writer's claims that as the eternal Son of God, which is better than the angels, Jesus Christ, first of all, remains, if you recall with me, verse 11, they shall perish, but thou remainest. The verb remainest means to stay, continue, and reside. Christ has always been and continues to be. Then second, we saw that Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, is unchanging. Verse 12, they shall be changed, but thou art the same. Now remember, these are quotes from the Old Testament, and this is so important. Don't forget this. The writer of Hebrews is quoting the Old Testament because they saw Jesus, or they saw God as, as a monotheistic being. There is one being that is God. Now, is that true? Well, yes. But there are also three distinct persons that make up that one divine eternal being. And in the Old Testament, if you recall with me, I pointed out last week, even Isaiah 9, 6, for instance, when the scripture says that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and it goes on to refer to him as counselor, the prince of peace. And then it names what? The everlasting father. But wait a minute, Jesus in the flesh is not the everlasting father. He and the father are one. But remember, in the Old Testament, you saw God from a monotheistic perspective. Remember, this is the seed form of the fruition of the truth in the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, all the Jews knew were that there was this one God, and there is only one God. He in the Old Testament declared he himself to be one God, the one true God. And so that was not a misplaced belief by any means, but it was a limited understanding of this greater truth of who God actually is. And so the Old Testament writers are showing this monotheistic God while the New Testament writers are expressing to us and explaining to us this unfolding of the old that this Jesus, the one they spoke of in the Psalms, this God, is truly manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, who is still this God. Remember Philippians 2, again, the Carmen Christi, that Christ, Jesus who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, but took on him the form of a servant. Remember that? He humbled himself even at the death, the death of the cross. But then God hath highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name. Again, in a glorified body, Christ is now exalted above that of the angels, his own created beings, to which he humbled himself below even them, being made lower than the angels, but now God also had highly exalted him. The glorified flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ is now exalted above even that of the angels, exalted above all others in a glorified body. And again, don't, don't forget, it's very important to remember this, and I've stressed this many times, that if you don't understand this, you'll be confused. Jesus has always been, he was never created. 
He is this Son of God, the eternal Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14 of John 1. And so we know that Jesus has always been. But he humbled himself. He was not in a fleshly body in eternity prior to the incarnation. But he humbled himself and came in the flesh that he then, after that humility, might be exalted in a glorified flesh above all others. And it's at the right hand of God the Father. So he's unchanging. They shall be changed, but thou art the same, the scripture says, and the same as a pronoun, which means he. And that's interesting because he, the great I am, is unchanging. Again, Hebrews 13, 8, the writer says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the word same is the same word in the Greek here as it is when it says, but thou art the same in verse 12 of chapter 1. And what that means is literally it's a pronoun of all things, meaning he. And so really it's saying he, the great I am, is unchanging. Jesus Christ, the he, yesterday and today and forever. But who is the he? The I am. The great I am, who is an unchanging one. Then you have that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, of course, is eternal. Verse 12 goes on to say, that years shall not fail. The verb fail means to cease, to die, or to run out. Jesus Christ is better than the angels, for he is the eternal Son of God. So as we conclude this first chapter of this epistle, I believe it's important to explain the connections between these two verses with both the previous verses of the chapter, which we just reviewed many of them, and the verses to follow within the second chapter. We will take a glance into them just for the sake of seeing the connection this evening. The final two verses of this chapter not only summarize the writer's previous statements, which emphasize that Jesus Christ, God's Son, is better than the angels, but these verses also set the stage for verses 5 through 10 in the following chapter. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me now. This is where we're going to be this evening. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits? Set forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Now the writer again quotes from the Psalms once again here in this passage. Psalms 110 verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord. Now listen, isn't that interesting? The Lord said unto my Lord. Now here you find two mentions of Lord. Both capitalized as well, by the way. The Lord said unto my Lord. The Lord, all caps, and then unto my Lord, capital L. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now, in a monotheistic belief system, does this not create a little bit of a problem <laughs> that the Lord said unto my Lord, sit on my right hand? So even though you find, in a sense, a declaration here of God the Father and God the Son, that was not spelled out in the Old Testament. It is seed form. They're still looking at a monotheistic God, one God. As I previously mentioned, chapter 1, verse 14 summarizes the superiority of Jesus above the angels already stated in chapter 1, 5 through 13, as we've looked at. However, the references to the angels in chapter 1, 5 through 13 are presented by the writer as an introduction to explaining that Jesus Christ humbled himself to suffer for the salvation of mankind, as explained in chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. So let me explain. I, I, I know I'm, I'm referencing a lot of of passages here, all with, mostly within Hebrews itself, but do not lose track, please. I want you to see these connections. That's why we're looking at this as we are this evening. In chapter 1, 5 through 13, you find where the angels are mentioned and how the emphasis is made 
that Jesus Christ is better than the angels. And then it goes through talking much about the angels for the purpose of showing that Jesus is better than them. But it's not only showing the superiority of Jesus, though it is definitely doing that, it's also this passage in verses 5 through 13 of chapter 1 also serves as an, as an introduction or introductory, has an introductory purpose for chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. Now, there's 1 through 4, of course, which precedes that, but let's look at verses 5 through 10 of chapter 2 and see what he, what he states. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak? But in one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now notice what he's saying. Again, quotes Old Testament and saying it's been stated that man was made a little lower than the angels. This is about mankind. That mankind is made a little lower. And that God has put all things under subjection to him. In other words, God gave man dominion over all that he had created, over the entirety of the world, did he not? Man is the, is the steward of the world, and that's what's being stated. But yet, he goes on to say, in contrast, that we don't see all things put under man's feet yet, of course, but, but we understand that, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower. He is the perfect man, and he was made lower, and all things are under his feet, but he was made lower for the purpose of suffering unto death, that we might be redeemed. So throughout this first chapter of Hebrews, the, the writer clearly emphasized that Jesus is God's Son manifested in the flesh, and it is Jesus who is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. It is important that we understand that the writer's intent specifically due to the verses that deal with the angels, that the overall emphasis, including the comparison of Jesus to the angels, is to explain and confirm that Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of God to man. He is God in the flesh. Going back to chapter 1, if you look at the beginning verses, verse 2, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So here again, he's emphasizing that Christ is better, he is superior. And, and chapter 1, 1 through 3 of Hebrews, clearly, as I've mentioned, is parallel to John chapter 1, 1 through 3 that I quoted just a moment ago. And then verse 14, of course, as well. So this emphasis throughout this first chapter, even talking about the angels, it's not about the angels, it's about Christ who is better than the angels, and then introducing verses 5 and following in chapter 2, which are explaining that Jesus had to be made lower than the angels in the flesh, that he might suffer unto death for our redemption. Now, this is very interesting. David Allen goes on to say this. One thing seems crystal clear. The author's exegetical method of reading the Old Testament to the Hebrew authors, 
exegetical method of reading the Old Testament with Christocentric glasses appears squarely within the apostolic tradition as evidenced in the New Testament. Here's what he's saying if you don't understand. He's saying that the Hebrew writer is doing exactly what I mentioned a moment ago. He is viewing all of the Old Testament, all of these references to Psalms and the prophets. He is viewing all of the Old Testament clearly through a Christocentric lens. He's saying this has always been about Jesus and I'm going to show you how it's about him. I want you to understand how it's about him. And so he's emphasizing this truth. He goes on to say, he has also, meaning the Hebrew writer, also made us made use of accepted Jewish exegetical techniques coupled with an ex, explication of Second Temple Jewish theology about God to illustrate both the divine nature of Jesus and how he can be worshipped as God in a monotheistic Jewish framework. Again, I told you that the framework of the Old Testament, of course, is that of monotheism, one theos, one God. And so he's saying there's only one God. But yet we understand that he is using the Old Testament, the Hebrew writer is, to show these Hebrews or Jews who would have understood the Old Testament that the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is not contradictive to an Old Testament Jewish framework of monotheism of one God. Jesus himself says, again, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Remember he told Philip that. Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so he's not saying that there are three manifestations of one God, but there are three distinct persons. And again, I don't want to belabor the point and digress, but let me state that I hold to theologically, and I believe most of you would too, probably if not all of you, would hold to what would be theologically referred to as Trinitarian monotheistic view. And so, in other words, we believe there is still monotheism, one God, but yet it's a Trinitarian monotheistic view, which is meaning that there is one God, one eternal Godhead, one eternal being who is God, but yet there are three distinct persons within that Godhead, not three manifestations, not three modes by which God exists, but three distinct persons. Again, I say to you once again, as I've said to you many times, there is no comparison that we have to make to that. In other words, you, there's nothing I can provide you as an illustration of the Godhead. Nothing. Nothing works. Nothing fits. Because he is beyond anything and everything that we can compare him to. And so we cannot say he's like this or that. No, he is like, he's unlike anything man knows apart from him. He is unique to himself. And so he is this one God, but yet co-equally coexisting, I hate using the term coexisting, but for the sake of the argument and for explanation, co-equally coexisting as one eternal divine being. And again, these are the things that make us go, because we can't comprehend this. We can believe this, we can understand the concept of this, but we cannot comprehend, comprehend the truth of who God is. And that's the beauty of understanding that he is beyond our comprehension. That we cannot, we cannot put him in our little box and say this is like God or God is like this. No, you can't. Because he's beyond that. He's beyond what you think he is like to that which is, is incomparable. It's also interesting that in the final verse of this chapter, the writer includes the matter of salvation within the text, isn't it? Notice verse 14. Are they, talking about angels, 
not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. So here, he's speaking of Jesus. Now, this is very interesting. He's speaking of Jesus, who is better than the angels. And then he goes speaking about these angels. And he speaks somewhat about them, does he not? And he talks about how, did God ever tell any of the angels, sit there on my right hand? No, of course not. I'll make all your enemies uh, your footstool. He never told the angels that. So he speaks about these angels and gives us some understanding of that. But he's doing, doing this, again, to, to explain and to proclaim the excellency of Christ. When I say excellency, I mean superiority of Jesus Christ, that he is better. But then also to introduce chapter 2, 5, and following concerning how he had to become lower than the angels as man was made lower. Now Jesus made himself, humbled himself to become lower than the angels himself in a flesh that was in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin. And he humbled himself that he might suffer unto death for our redemption. And here in verse 14, the writer brings all of that into view or introduces this when he says, are they the angels, not all ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Now, there are some terms which need to be defined within this verse. First of all, ministering spirits. Ministering. This literally means engaged in special service. Now, we know that angels, by definition, are messengers. They are sent forth as servants. And so the ministering, when it says, uh, are they not all ministering spirits, it speaks of those spirits that are engaged in special service, then sent forth to minister. Minister here means service. So they are engaged in special service, sent forth to serve. But then three, them who shall be heirs of salvation. Heirs means be about to or going to, and salvation literally means deliverance. So the overall point in this verse is to support the previous emphasis that Jesus Christ is better than the angels. And let me explain what I mean by that. And I hope you don't miss this. Please pay attention again to this. Are they, are the angels, are they not all engaged in special service? Listen to, what, listen to the questions being asked, but remember the emphasis. The emphasis is that Christ is better than this. But yet, listen to what he says. Are these spirits, are these angels, are they not sent by God to be engaged in a special service? Not a general service, not... This is a special service engaged in the special purpose to serve all of those who are going to be delivered or saved. Now, when you stop and consider that for a moment, first we must ask the question, is that not an important purpose? Now, let me just... disassemble some misconception here. This verse in no way teaches us that there are, each of us have some guardian angel that watches over us. It does not declare that. That's not the point of this verse whatsoever. It is saying that these angels are messengers of God sent to minister specifically to those who are going to be born again. But that's not saying that it is some individual guardian angel God gives every believer. Listen, let me, let me, just, let me explain this to you for a moment. And notice the term and, and the, the language, the grammar that is used here. For them who shall be heirs of salvation. Not those who are. Now what is the distinction here? Well, let me say this to you. 
those who are already the heirs of salvation, who do we have within us? Who? Christ or the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, right? He is dwelling. Do I need a guardian angel when I have the very Spirit of God dwelling in me? But notice what he does say, that these are ministering spirits engaged in special service to service or to be in service to those who shall be heirs of salvation, to all of them collectively who will become believers in Christ. We are those who will be, have these ministering spirits. Now, this is not the point of the text, again. And I think if we're not careful, it's easy for people to get so sidetracked by uh, the peripherals, if you will, that they miss the whole point of what's being stated. All this talk about the angels is not to glamorize or cause us to be misfocused upon the angels. It's to show us that Christ is better than this, as much as we would look at the angelic beings and think, wow, what a wonder this is. Christ humbled himself below that, that he might be exalted by God after having suffered and died for us. And so this is about Jesus being better than all of this. And you say, wait a minute, but these angels are messengers of God sent to the specific purpose of the special ministry of serving those who shall be heirs of salvation. But let us not neglect to see this truth. While the angels are said to be ministering spirits sent to serve or to engage in a special service to those who shall be heirs of salvation, those who are going to be delivered, let us never forget it is Jesus Christ who not only provides such salvation, but it is Jesus who is this salvation. So no wonder the writer would simply say Christ is better. How would he say that? Why would he say that? Oh, the ministering angels, they go and they serve those who shall be heirs of salvation. But how does this salvation even become realized in one's life? It's because Christ is that salvation. They, the angels, are only ministering to those who will receive the benefit of the Savior who humbled himself and died. As we continue our study of this epistle in chapter 2, we will see how verse 14 of chapter 1 leads us into the truth stated within the following chapter. In other words, because Jesus Christ is better, because he is the Son of God, because he is God manifested in the flesh, because he is the creator and sustainer of all that is, we are to give attention to what God has said through him. Hath in these last days, verse 2, remember, spoken unto us by his Son, and we have the point heir of all things. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, let's read these verses. We're not going to deal with them, but let's just read them in light of it. Therefore, this is going back to the fact that Christ is better, God has spoken to us through his Son. We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. Here he's saying, if, if the Old Testament believer, who God spoke to by the prophets and the fathers and so on and so forth, in, in many ways, in different times, in diverse manners, different ways, he says, if God spoke to them, he said, and now God has spoken to his son, and the angels and the messengers of God are now 
purpose to minister to those whom Christ will redeem. He is the redemption. He is the one who's performed this work, and God has spoken through him, the Redeemer. Then we ought to give them earnest heed lest we let these things slip. And, and how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Which, of course, he goes on to explain that God bore witness of this salvation, both with signs and wonders. He's talking about the New Testament era with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Gifts of the Holy Spirit mean, of course, as God has gifted believers by his Spirit, specifically probably more so sign gifts here than spiritual gifts because of the, the diverse miracles and wonders and things such as that, according to his own will. He says, how shall we escape, escape if we neglect so great salvation? This is a great salvation, which originates and is perfected in and by the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we have received of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, according to the will of God, so we must be aware and mindful and not neglect these marvelous truths of who Christ is and what he has accomplished and recognize, as the Hebrew writer makes clear in this passage, that Jesus Christ is better. He is better. All the angels are ministering spirits to the work of Christ. But it is Christ who is our redemption. And so all this is tied together by the Old Testament, now being explained in the New Testament, which again is consistent with all the writings of the apostles, with all the writings uh, to the churches, the epistles and such, are all bearing the same witness and testimony that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the promises. He's the fulfillment of the covenant that God has made. Jesus Christ is better. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the word of God and for the reminder.